Hello, and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Sometimes church might feel like a social club where you might or might not fit in. Being a Christian isn't joining a club, it's being adopted and accepted as a child of God. Teaching team member Caleb Click starts the Holy Week series, United in Christ, with this sermon entitled United in Sonship, which covers Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Ephesians chapter one, uh, we're going to be kicking off the, this Holy Week series called United, where we're looking at what it means to be united to Jesus in his person and in his work, but not just united to Jesus, but united in him to each other. And on the surface, that might seem like an odd choice for a Holy Week theme. I mean, after all, you're probably sitting there thinking, like, isn't this the week where we rehearse as the body of Christ the events of Holy Week, Jesus marching into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday to the shouts of Hosanna, Jesus' institution of the Last Supper, his betrayal, his crucifixion, his burial, and his resurrection. And I would say to you, it is every single one of those things and more, and that is exactly what we intend to do. We want to rehearse that narrative. We want to imbibe that narrative. We want to drink it and eat it because it is our life. But our goal this week, it's not just to tell the story. It is to go as God's people even deeper into the significance of what that event actually means. Why did Jesus come? Why did he march into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey on Palm Sunday? Why did he allow himself to suffer and to die and to be buried? It wasn't just to be an example for us. And it certainly wasn't to acquire something new for himself because as the one who possesses all things, what could he possibly need? It was for one reason. It was to acquire something for us. A salvation that we could not acquire for ourselves, but one that can only be enjoyed if first we are united to him. Calvin, in his Institutes, he says this, we must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us and we are separated from him, all that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value to us. If we are outside of Jesus, none of the events of this week have any bearing on our lives whatsoever. But if we are in him, and we have been joined with him by faith through the power of the Spirit, then there is grace upon grace and blessings beyond measure and every single one of them free. And it's the reality that Paul in one long sentence of praise shouts to the rooftops here in Ephesians chapter one. A reality that comes to us in a way I hope you'll notice he says 11 different times in and through Jesus Christ. Listen now as we read from God's word. We're gonna read verses three to 14, but our focus is gonna be on verses four to six. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, 
before the foundation of the world that we as God's people should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is God's word, let's pray. Gracious Father, Lord, you have blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Lord, in ways that we don't even have words to quantify and we pray this morning, would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to receive all that you have given us in Jesus. And would we leave this place, Lord, with our hearts filled to the brim with praise because we recognize what Paul has, that there is nothing that we need, nothing that we need that you have not supplied in your son, Jesus Christ, and given to us as your people. Would you do this now in Jesus' name? Amen. You know, in movies... There's popular tropes that you see over and over again because they speak to universal human experiences. Uh, and one of those is the trope of someone, some character who is caught up in a situation where they are in danger of being overwhelmed. And they need in that moment someone to return them to their senses. Uh, you see this in a myriad different ways in different films. In war movies, it's the soldier who right before the main battle, before they're about to charge out into action and face combat, maybe for the first time, they suddenly forget everything they've learned. They forget their duty because they hear the bullets whizzing and they see the bombs going off and they begin to panic and they begin to tremble and they begin to fear and someone has to step in and slap them in the face to remind them what their duty is. Return them to their senses so that they can do the thing they've been trained to do. In old westerns, there's generally some character, usually the day before something significant happens, who decides to drink way too much. And the only way that they can be returned to their senses is if somebody comes into their room and dumps a bucket of cold water on their head. But the version, the version that I love most is the one where the hands that come near to restore us to our senses, they're not the hands of brute force or of brusque indifference, but the hands of love. Hands that draw the person who is panicking close 
and whisper the truth, a truth that cushes their fears and assures their hearts. That's what Paul is doing here in Ephesians 1, if we have ears to hear. Paul Paul is talking to a church that's in danger of being overwhelmed. And with the love of a pastor, the love of a shepherd, Paul would restore them to their senses. This church in Ephesus, this is a church that Paul loves. And it's a church that loves Paul. In the book of Acts, when the gospel is first preached in this city, quite literally, it turns not just this community, but the whole city upside down. People are leaving the synagogues, pagans are leaving the temple, and people, families, are taking their books of magic. This is in Acts 19. And they are quite literally burning them in the streets to the tune, according to the text, of something like five to six million dollars in today's money. These texts, these magic books that are supposed to protect them from the hostile forces in the world and that represented for a lot of these families their livelihoods. The gospel comes into this community and it quite literally flips it on its head. And this new community composed of Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, rich and poor, that has all been brought together in Christ, they are living in such a radically countercultural way that in Acts 19, they quite literally become a threat to the economy. And it causes a riot. People are panicking because this community, which is not a very large one, is living in such a radically different way that the production of idols, which is the economic engine of that city, it's in danger. And the city doesn't like it. This is a church that in many ways is an ideal one in the, in the New Testament. And yet, just like us, this is a church that struggles. Because in the years that have passed since Paul was with them, the reality of the day-to-day struggle to follow Jesus has begun to set in. Paul is in prison, and he's never coming back. And the hostility that erupted in a riot on that day in Ephesus, it is a hostility that simmers still, and they are wondering if they really made a good decision to cast all their hope on Jesus. And this community of Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, that have all been brought together in Christ, they are waking up every day in a world that tells them that not only is that unity impossible, but it's even undesirable. They wake up in a culture that tells them that there are some people who matter and some people who don't. And to a form of government that doesn't just tell them that, but acts as though that is true. And there is this problem that we all face, that in this church where the gospel has had such a profound impact on their lives, they are discovering that old habits and old attitudes, they die hard. And there's a tug, this gentle tug to go back to the way things were because to flow along with the current feels so much safer, so much easier than to embrace this countercultural, upside-down world of the gospel that Paul has called them into. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? 
These are a people who are tempted to be overwhelmed, who by the world around them and the pressures that are being brought to bear, they are confused and disoriented and uncertain and they are wondering where they should look. And right here, Paul, from the very opening of this letter, Paul is taking them by the shoulders and he's looking them in the face and he's saying, here is where your hope is found. Here is the truth that assures your hearts and hushes your fears. You have been brought in Christ into a reality that is bigger than you and bigger than this world that consumes the entirety of the heavens and the earth. And while the call is hard and the struggle, it is real, your God and Father, he has blessed you in Christ Jesus, not just with some spiritual blessings, but with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. There is absolutely nothing you need that God in Jesus Christ has not provided for you in full. There is no obstacle too great there is no battle too hard because you have been brought into something that has its roots in eternity past and one day will be experienced in full when Jesus Christ returns in glory. And it is a blessing, a blessing that flows from one fount. God the Father chose us in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world. And he did so, as Paul says in this text, with purpose. Look at verses four to six. This is our main text today. He's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Paul says, when you heard the gospel, the word of your salvation, he says in verse 13, and you believed in Jesus Christ, you came to share in Christ and all of his benefits, the forgiveness, the mercy, the grace, the hope, the future, all of it is yours in him. But the reason that you heard the gospel and you believed it, it was rooted in a decision that was made before time itself began. A moment when the God who created the heavens and the earth, he put Jesus Christ and his people together in his mind and he chose us in the Son. Not that we would remain as we are, but that we would become what we are not, holy and blameless before him, a people whose hearts and lives smell like the aroma of Jesus Christ. And even more than that, set apart, predestined, so that we would have relationship with him, not as slaves or servants, but as beloved sons of the Most High God. God chose us in Christ. And this this is the secret spring from which every single blessing we have in Christ flows. Now I know 
that as soon as I start using words like choosing and predestining, some of you guys start to twitch in your seats. Your palms start to sweat a little bit and you begin to get a little nervous because you came for a Palm Sunday sermon and now you're getting one on predestination and nobody really likes that. And I have to confess that when I first heard this concept, uh, I would have experienced this in exactly the same way. Uh, I didn't grow up Presbyterian. Uh, I didn't grow up in even what are quote unquote called reform circles. I grew up in the assembly of God and in non-denominational charismatic circles. And if you don't know what that means, it means there was a lot more speaking in tongues and a lot less sprinkling of babies. And there was definitely a lot less talking of God's choosing and his predestining. And even though my family started coming to Perimeter when I was a junior in high school, I was just an oblivious high school kid. So I didn't even realize this church was Presbyterian. You know, like the, the baby sprinkling should have told me something, but I missed it until I was in college. And it was only in college that this idea, it first hit home what it implied. And I remember hearing it and, and balking. Like I remember internally responding violently to this because I heard it and I thought that just sounds so unfair. It sounds so arbitrary. It, it, how is God glorified if he is the one who chooses me before I choose him? How is that possibly honoring to him? But in the years that have passed since that moment, there are several things that have become clear to me. The, the first is that what we're talking about here, this isn't a human invention. This is biblical revelation. Now, we may come to different conclusions, about what this means, but there is this inescapable fact that runs all through the Bible. The God of the Bible, he is a choosing God. He chose Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He chose Israel and now he chooses the church. The question is, what does that mean? And the second thing is this. That thing that used to sound like bad news, the more I have studied the scriptures and the more I have looked at the gospel, the more it has sounded like the best news I could ever possibly hear. Because here's the uncomfortable reality that the Bible teaches. If God doesn't intervene, we will never, ever come to share in Jesus. Here's what the Bible teaches us. It says first, there is a free offer of the gospel. I mean, Paul, he brings it up right here in verse 13. How did you come to share in Christ and his benefits? You heard it, the gospel, and you believed in Christ. And now you are heirs of that inheritance sealed by the Holy Spirit. You received it because you heard the gospel and you responded to it. It's the same thing you hear from the lips of Jesus when he says in Matthew 11, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Jesus, Jesus isn't talking out of two sides of his mouth. He is really, truly inviting all who are weary to come and experience from him the rest that only he can provide. He means it. But here's the conundrum that appears in scripture. If all God does in Christ is make possible our salvation and offer us the gospel, then come to Jesus left to our own devices. That is one thing we will never, ever actually do. Paul, Paul tells us why in the very next chapter in the book of Ephesians. He says, when we were in Adam before we were in Christ, we weren't just sick or wounded, we, we were dead. 
We were dead in our trespasses and in our sins, and sin was something that we lived and breathed. Sin was something that didn't just enslave us, we loved it. And in that love, we found all of our slavery. We weren't by nature objects of God's favor. We were by nature, according to Paul, objects of God's wrath. And the only reason that we have come to share in the mercy and the wonder and the grace of Jesus It is this one glorious reality, chapter two, verse four, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, which go back to Ephesians chapter one, in love he predestined us. Because of the great love with which he loved us, he made us alive with Christ. Left to our own devices, If all God gives is an offer, it's a lot like us going up to a dead body and telling it to make its heart beat. It's not gonna work. Apart from God's intervention, we are like a ball that somebody throws in the air and is subject to the laws of gravity. There's only one place that ball's gonna end up, and that's the ground, unless someone or something arrests its descent. God's choosing, it doesn't take away our freedom. God's choosing actually sets us free. It is God reaching down to those who were dead and headed in only one direction and making them alive and pulling them in a radically different one. And here's the beauty of it. This action is not the whim of a moment. It's not something that God just does spontaneously because he saw a need and suddenly decided to act on it. Rather, this is the eternal purpose of God made before the very foundation of the world to pursue a people for himself that they would experience and share in adoption as sons. When Jesus, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, It was the expression of God's eternal purpose in space and time and history to not only save a people, but to claim them for himself as sons and daughters, the living God. The glory of God is not in our choosing of him. The glory of God is in the revelation of the one who doesn't just save sinners, he adopts them and not because we have anything to offer him. You know, that reality, it should do three things in us. It should humble us, it should comfort us, and it should challenge us. First, it should humble us. You know, if we hear that, and the response of our heart is to suddenly puff up with pride. I think we've profoundly misunderstood what Paul's been saying here. Because the reason we're in Jesus, it's not because of anything in us. It's not because we had more education or we were more intelligent or we were better informed or because we were born in the right families or we went to the right churches or we performed the right rituals. It's not even because God looked down the corridors of time and happened to see that you or I would believe in him by faith someday in the future. The timing of God's choosing 
And the reality of our status in Adam apart from God's intervention means that if we are born in Adam, then in Adam we will remain. Only God is going to pull us from this. So why? Why is it that we get to share this glorious thing that is unlike anything else? Because God is not like us. I say this in every wedding I've performed so far, maybe I'll change it someday, but I say this in every wedding I've ever performed, that when we get married, we get married because we met somebody that we thought was beautiful, and we wanted to be with them, and we loved them for that beauty. You know, I didn't propose to Mallory because I found her repulsive. I proposed to Mallory because I discovered a woman who was beautiful inside and out, and I loved her, and I wanted to be with her. And somehow, by some miraculous gift of God, she looked at me and thought the same thing. I don't know why. But that's why we get married, isn't it? We see something beautiful. We love it, and we want that. We want to share in that. We want to experience that. And that is a good and beautiful and glorious thing, but that is not the love of God. God's love, as Luther teaches, God's love isn't responsive. God's love is creative. We love what we find beautiful. God makes beautiful what he loves. Holy and blameless people out of people who are anything but. Sons and daughters of the living God out of those who are by nature objects of wrath. God in his mercy and in his grace, he speaks life into our hearts. And quite literally, the language of scripture is we become new creations. The God who spoke the heavens and the earth into being, he speaks a new reality into being in us in and through Jesus Christ. You know, that, that shouldn't make us proud that should drive us to our knees. It should cause us to lift up our voices and shout with Paul, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because all of this is grace. It should humble us. But second, it should comfort us for two reasons. First, it should comfort us because it tells us that our security, it's not in us. You know, we have a tendency to hear this doctrine, and I, I know this because I've done this, and just start to twist ourselves into knots trying to figure out if we're among the elect. Trying to like peel back the mystery that is behind the creation of all things and to see into eternity past and figure out, like, am I one of those people? And we think that until we know that, we can't actually know if we're forgiven. And I just want to make this super clear right now. That's not what Paul is wanting you to do. Paul's not talking to people outside of Jesus. Paul's talking to people who are in Jesus. He is speaking to those who heard the gospel and believed the gospel, and his intent, it is to assure them of the hope that they have in the gospel. In every instance where God's choosing or predestining comes up, in the letters of Paul, and I'm pretty sure in all of Scripture, it is always, for one reason, it is the comfort of God's people if it scares you, you've missed the point. Paul, he's saying, if you heard and believed the gospel, and your heart, because of the spirit of adoption in you, it is cried, Abba, Father. And you, while you may still struggle, and yet while you still struggle with sin, you long for Jesus, then you are one that God has loved and chosen before the foundation of the world. 
and your security. It's not in something as fickle as human choice that changes one minute from one minute to the next. Your security is in the choice, is a choice made before the foundation of the world by the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what he has purposed to do, he will bring to fruition in and through Jesus Christ. But second, it comforts us in this way. Paul doesn't just write this so that we would know where our security lies. He writes it so that we would know our status. That we would realize that we, as God's people, we matter to God more than we could ever begin to know. Recently, a friend of mine gave me a fascinating book by Sarah Rudin called Paul Among the People. And it's a book that's all about the cultural background of Paul's Greco-Roman audience that, that looks at the things that they are experiencing and the beliefs that underlie this culture and how it might change the way that they are hearing Paul's words in ways that maybe miss us who now live 2,000 years in the future. And one of the things that, that she brings up is the status of slaves. This is a letter that Paul is writing to a church where there are slaves in this congregation. He, he directly addresses them in chapter six so you know that they're there. And here's why this is significant. If you were a slave in the Greco-Roman world, you were considered something less than human. Your body, it did not belong to you. It belonged to your master to do with however they saw fit. They could beat you, maim you, they could gut you like a fish in front of a dinner party. And while that might be considered bad taste, it wouldn't be considered bad morals. And there would be no legal consequence for you doing so. You lived with one purpose, to serve. You were not to be heard, your concerns were not to be raised, your feelings were not to be honored, you were there to serve the master and then you were there to die and nothing else. And even if they freed you, that was a status you couldn't even completely escape. How do you think they would have heard Paul's words right here? In a world that everywhere told them you were a nothing and a nobody, what does Paul say? In Jesus Christ, you are not a nothing and a nobody, you are a somebody. When Jesus Christ rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday to fulfill his father's eternal purpose of inviting people into his family as sons and daughters, he came for you. That you would not just be a slave in his house as you were a slave in that one, but that instead you would be a son of the living God. And you might go, well, why a son and not a daughter? Because in the Greco-Roman world, it was the sons who mattered. The sons got the family name and the sons got the inheritance. The sons were somebodies. Paul 
to an audience of male and female, Jew and Gentile, slave and free, rich and poor. He says, in Christ Jesus, you have received a status that only a select few in society have, and it is even better than the one that they have in this world because yours is rooted in eternity and it promises a future that even death can't take away. An inheritance that belongs to Jesus Christ alone, but it is now given to you. You matter to God. And as I was reading through this text this week, I just couldn't help but think of the events that happened just a few weeks ago in the shooting that claimed the lives of eight image bearers of God, six of whom were Asian American. And as I and other members of this church, if we've been sitting with our Asian American brothers and sisters, the the theme that keeps coming back is just the incredible pain and hurt that that event has caused. Because it's come at the end of a year where hate and violence against Asian Americans, by every measurable statistic, it has risen exponentially. And this has felt like someone took their finger and jabbed it into the wound and started wiggling it around. And there is this cultural pressure, this whisper that says to people as they are in the midst of that kind of pain that tells them that they need to keep that to themselves, that they should not lift up their voices, they are not free to express their brokenness and their hurt and their woundedness because that would disrupt the peace and the purity of the body. We gotta somehow keep that to ourselves. And it can make you feel like a nothing and a nobody. And I would want you at this moment to hear this. Jesus Christ doesn't look at you that way. And the father, he doesn't want his children to hide their feelings, their emotions, their hurt, and their brokenness. He wants them to bring it to him as his children. The scriptures don't tell us to stuff our feelings. The scriptures invite us to throw them at the feet of our Father in heaven. To lament. But not to lament as those who don't have hope. If we're in Christ, predestined for adoption through him, then our hope is in this. There is going to be a day when in the same way that Jesus rode on a donkey into Jerusalem, in a way just as real and just as tangible, Jesus is going to come back. And it won't be in humility like the first time. It's gonna be in power. And in him, as Paul says here in verse 10, in him all things are going to be gathered up and everything that is broken it will be restored both in heaven and on earth and that means even this will be made right that's comfort but there's also a challenge because there's somebody else in this audience it's not just the slaves It's their masters. They're in Ephesians chapter six too. They're offered the same comfort, but you have to think that those words are gonna hit just a little bit differently, don't you? Because what are you being told? You matter to God, but so do your slaves. They don't belong to you anymore. They belong to Jesus even as you do. 
And while you may live in a world that tells you they are nothings and nobodies who live only to serve you and your whims, if this is true, then they are sons and daughters of the living God to be served even as you serve Jesus Christ. They aren't something less than human. They're your brothers and sisters and those who share an inheritance that is greater than anything you possess in this world and you are to love them even as Christ Jesus has loved you. This is an atomic bomb that threatens to blow up the entire social structure of the Greco-Roman world. I mean, we in the modern world, we want Paul to go further than he does, but right here, he just planted the seed that unravels the slave trade in the Western world because what does he say to them in Ephesians 6, verse nine? The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he is not just the master of your slaves, he's your master too, and that God, he doesn't show partiality. He doesn't look in the world and say, these people can be treated one way and these people can be treated another. Rather, God, he treats all men as those created in the image of God and he offers us life in the body as those who have been redeemed in Christ and adopted as sons. And God is not mocked. And here is where it challenges us now. We may be 2,000 years removed in a radically different cultural context, but here's the truth. No temptation has overtaken us except what is common to man. And the question that we need to be asking every one of us without exception is this. In my heart, where are there people that I'm tempted to treat as though they are nobodies and nothings? Where are the people whose concerns I think have less value than my own? Where are the people who maybe that I care for, but I only care for them so long as they don't get in the way of my comfort? And where does our culture today tell us that's okay? Paul, Paul in our, these three verses, he blows all that up. That may be the way in the world, that's not the way in the church, is it? We have been brought into a new family and that comes with new responsibilities and it comes with a new hope. We are those, we are those who have been loved in Christ and to love our brothers and sister in Christ as though they are of more value than ourselves. And if it applies to masters and slaves, then that means it applies to everyone your employees, your neighbors, your coworkers, your political opponents, even those who are in prison for the most heinous of crimes. Because the same redemption that has been offered you in Christ is theirs as well. To a church that is in danger of being overwhelmed, Paul, Paul would restore us to our senses to see in Jesus a reality that is bigger than us and bigger than our circumstances that consumes the entirety of the heavens and the earth. God the Father and God the Son, he chose us in Christ not to leave us as we are but that we would be holy and blameless before him. And even more than that, 
He set us apart for adoption as sons. It should humble us. It should comfort us. And it should challenge us to live lives, as Paul says in verse six, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he's blessed us in the beloved. Let me pray. Gracious Father, Lord, we have come to a reality that is so far bigger than us. And we pray, Lord, would you press these truths home to our hearts? Would we be gospel people and a gospel community? Lord, who have awakened to the reality of our adoption in Christ, but also, Lord, for the implications that has for our relationship with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ who share the God and Father of Jesus Christ as our Father too. Would you work in us in such a way that even as it did with the church in Ephesus, Lord, that it would turn our lives upside down. And through it, Lord, it would turn the world around us upside down too. Would you do this in Jesus' name? Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.